You know, I think I had some idealized ideas about what Reiki healing session would be like. And, you know, I think what it was in, in my experience then was just opening up to a new question, I would say. You know, there was a sense of relaxation, a sense of connection, a sense of, you know, maybe feeling something moving. I'm not sure, right? It was like in this in this container of a class where we're like experiencing it, but learning it at the same time. And so there was a lot of like uncertainty in that experience, but it was, you know, this, just this sensation of like my whole system uh, taking a break from the stress that it had been running for so long. This is the podcast Creative at the Wheel and I'm Julie Clare. As a transformational life coach and creativity guide, my life's work is helping people reshape their lives from the inside out. Here, I have deep dive conversations with luminaries who share about their own transformational journeys and how they became soul sourced and creatively juiced. May their stories uplift and embolden all of us. Let's jump in. My guest today is Michaela Daystar. After eight years serving as the director of the Institute for Civic Leadership at Mills College, Michaela launched her own business, Heartscapes, teaching wellness and resilience practices with nonprofits, universities, government agencies, and individuals. Heartscapes operates at the intersection of self-reflection, embodiment practice, and social action. The center point of her work is a system of Reiki, taught from the perspective of its Japanese origins and the intuitive arts practice soul collage. Michaela holds a master's in leadership for social justice from St. Mary's College of California and certifications as a Reiki teacher through the International House of Reiki. Today we get to unpack her relationship and transformational journey with Reiki and Shintoism and all things imagination and creativity-based. Welcome in, Michaela. Thank you so much, Julie. It's really fun to be here. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this interview. I had such a good time when we were first talking. I, I want to start off just to give people a sense uh, of how in the world you found Reiki to begin with, um, just to give us a sense of who you are. I, I know that you were this uh, worked in leadership as a director at Mills College, but how would you describe your entry into Reiki? Yeah, it's that entry kind of was the result of two paths kind of intersecting. One was personal and one was professional. Um, Personally, I was um, kind of in a uh, crisis point in my life um, after several years of of just challenges. And that crisis culminated in a a divorce and, um, you know, all of the stickiness that comes with that, as well as the process of really starting to look at myself, my own um, limitations, my own Um, limiting beliefs, the contributions that I had been making to the problems that were happening in my life and really shifting from a perspective of these bad things are happening to me because of other people and circumstances into, you know, how am I participating and collaborating with my life in ways that are kind of manifesting these these experiences? And that was a profound um, question to to grapple with. And, um, you know, as we do when we are faced with profound grappling, uh, we turn to teachings, we turn to teachers and experiences that perhaps we've never had before to help us find the way. And Reiki and Soul Collage were two of those things that came into my life at that time. And 
that had the most profound effect on that journey and therefore uh, are still with me today. And let, me the- just, let, let me ask you, I know we haven't sure. gotten to the professional part, but um, did you seek other things as well? Or did Reiki and Soul Collage kind of, they were like the first things you found and they stuck with you? Or <laughs> were you, was this many years in finding Reiki when you were at that point of needing help or wanting to, wanting to shift? Yeah, I, it was a variety of things. And, and the way that it felt was kind of like following breadcrumbs in the woods. Like it was really like, I am desperate for help and I don't know where to find it. And the first thing that actually came my way through um, the advice of a very good friend was uh, Codependence Anonymous. So I did the 12-step program, Codependence Anonymous, for about a year and a half. And that was really the first time in my life that I had you know, taken a, a serious look at myself and taken a honest self-inventory and really, you know, as I said before, start to look at the ways in which I was contributing to my own misery in a certain sense. And um, that process of turning towards um, like honesty and, and self-reflection in that way uh, seemed to, to open up the, 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 the bag of breadcrumbs. And then I was, you know, following things that just struck my impulse. And so um, I worked with a shamanic practitioner for some time. I worked with a psych practitioner, uh, massage therapists, um, regular therapists. Like it was, it was really a, like at the time of my life where I was open to anything that felt, um, that just felt resonant. That felt like I, you know, if I could feel my body moving in its direction is kind of the way that I would, would have to say it. Um, which actually led me to, to really focus on building intuition and what, how do we build intuition through these practices? Cause it was tr- truly this experience of like purely leaning into an intuitive, um, moving in the direction of whatever came through that felt right. Um, uh, which I had never, which is not a way that I'd really operated. And I want to just, that. and I just want to say that to me, when I hear you, it's so beautiful and so mm-hmm. great that you're in a p- uh, position now of teaching and, and leadership yourself in this work. Because when I work with people, so many people that we're at a point with, how do I find the first breadcrumb? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I hear you just sharing it with us. Uh, you started, a friend mentioned something to you. You started with the uh, codependence uh, work and, and it, and it seems like it really did lead from there. And, and you did get to a place where you wanted to uh, really get to know more about intuition. Uh, Absolutely. So beautiful, just that, right? That and really driven from your personal need, desire, interest, and and what was your first experience of Reiki? My first experience with it um, almost was in the first class that I took. That was one again, one of these like breadcrumb moments. I was um, volunteering at a, a local church here, and I was in the office, and I heard somebody in the back of the office say something like, "I'm." I'm getting ready to teach my, my next Reiki class this weekend. And it was a woman who, you know, did some part-time work in their office. And it, you know, it was like, I'd heard the word before I had a friend who had some familiarity with it and had mentioned it, but I genuinely, you know, genuinely had no idea what, what it really was. And it was like, just hearing that word, like in a side conversation, somebody else was having, it was one of those you know, body pulled in that direction moments. And I just was like, Hey, what was that you just said? <laughs> you know, uh, sign me up. Right. It was really like literally Gosh. that simple so much so that like on her intake form for that class, she's like, describe your prior experience with Reiki. And I'm like, Oh shoot. I don't, 
that I, am I supposed to have some? Cause I don't. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was that, you know, kind of flash of, of just knowing. Got to talk about serendipity. Yeah, for sure. Wow. How, how great is that? Um, that the conversation that you overheard basically Reiki and, and so then that was how you, you, you got the hit right to start. And when you first received Reiki, was that, what was that like? Yeah, but I first received Reiki in the context of that class, you know, as, as I practiced with my peers and with my teacher, um, it was, you know, I didn't know what to expect again, because I was pretty fresh faced. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I think I had some idealized, you know, ideas about what, you know, a Reiki healing session would be like. Um, and you know, I think what it was and in my experience then was, um, you know, just opening up to a new question, I would say, you know, there was a sense of relaxation, a sense of connection, um, a sense of, you know, maybe feeling something moving, I'm not sure, right? It was like in this, in this container of a class where we're like experiencing it, but learning it at the same time. And so there was a lot of like uncertainty in that um, experience, but it was, you know, this just this sensation of like my whole system uh, taking a break from the stress that it had been running for so long. Um, and it was a subtle feeling, but it was like a, a sensation that like, okay, my system knows how to rest. It just hasn't been given the space for a long time. And so like more than anything, Reiki became space, you know, a space within which my system could do what it absolutely knows how to do anyway and is just simply distracted from doing most of the time. And when you, when did you start doing soul collage compared to this, the creative yeah, work there? Soul collage actually came first and it came through my job um, at the, at Mills college. And um, I'll just briefly share that story. Cause I, I just love it. We uh, Mills college was a, a woman's college. Um, it's actually just now going through a co-ed transition. It's a very, chaotic time for that community. Um, but for 160 something years was a women's college. And, um, you know, we, we were in a period of time of, uh, very explicitly going through a process of making, um, formal space, meaning through policy, um, uh, for transgender students. And so there was this big campus wide and alumni wide conversation around what does it mean to include, you know, trans and non-binary students in a college that's traditionally female only. Um, And, you know, I was staff and I was very passionate about um, our college expanding its uh, identity, expanding its understanding of itself to be more inclusive and to understand gender oppression through a wider lens. And it was really difficult conversations. There were a lot of people who felt very threatened by it. And so we were asked as staff to hold, you know, listening circles and and kind of hold intimate conversations for different people, you know, members of the community. And I really wanted to participate, but I was very uncertain how to hold that kind of space. Um, I was very uh, nervous about it going badly and becoming a really contentious space. And uh, I asked our um, campus chaplain for some support. And she said, well, I, you know, I know this process called soul collage that really helps people get out of um, blaming and like out of trying to um, convince people of things and really just into their own story and their own experience about questions that are important. And that sounded great. And I briefly learned a 
what ended up being modified version of the process and used it with great success in those conversations and just got absolutely hooked. And it was this, um, you know, first moment where in my professional life, which had been very externally focused, it had been very much focused on mentoring and supporting students and teaching students about how to do social justice, how to go out into the world and make change. Um, but what was incongruent for me, and back to what I alluded, the kind of professional path that eventually led me to Reiki, was that there was this whole internal piece, this whole piece around uh, the need for people to go through personal transformation of their own healing, their own self-reflection and understanding when it came to the types of social justice changes they wanted to make in the world. So many of my students were coming with so much pain and having been hurt so badly by the systems that they wanted to change. And in my capacity, in my job, I had very little space and skill and you know structure to address that. And you know, it was this growing sense over time that that was where I was supposed to be working, not in the space of teaching people how to do things. And so using soul collage in that capacity was the first time that I really got to open up a space for people to be and just be themselves and also uh, self-examine the, the questions that mattered to them in the context of the school. Oh, beautiful to hear that. Um, how you're, how that w- wove together somehow those two strands, the personal and the professional. Yeah. Wow. And what, um, I, I would love to hear what your experience has been, what was like to step up into being, um, from those experiences to being a teacher facilitator, I guess, of soul collage and a teacher uh, and facilitator of, of Reiki. What was that change like in terms of your own sense of self or Mm -hmm. um, relationship to source or. Yeah, well, it was certainly a, a slow change over time. Um, I would I I started practicing Reiki um, while still working at Mills and really as just a a way to be engaging in you know this other realm of doing the internal work and and not feeling them as being connected. In fact, I felt them as very disconnected, and I um, you know came to the point in my life where I was able uh, to go to graduate school and that opportunity was was became available, and I, I felt like I was at this crossroads where like I was looking at you know, this, this program in social justice leadership at St. Mary's, which was like continuing the job I'd been doing for a decade, or, you know, I, I felt very compelled by California College of the Arts and, um, uh, you know, certain other colleges that had like transformational, um, like psychology type programs. <clears throat> so I felt really pulled in these two different directions, you know, go in this completely new direction or stick with the path I've been walking. And I chose to stick with the path I've been walking, go to St. Mary's and the, 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 the trick, you know, the, the trickster universe that we get to live inside of, um, you know, sent me to a program that approaches leadership from the inside out and spent, you know, quite a bit of time asking us to self-examine and to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? And what are, what is our true gift? Um, don't, don't take for granted that the way that other people are doing things is the way you're supposed to do them. And I remember sitting in one of my first classes with my cohort. It was a very small, very intimate cohort um, of all happened to be all other women um, in this particular group and, you know, crying and saying, I, you know, I want my work to matter. I want my work to, you know, further social justice causes and help people 
do that in the world. You know, that matters so much to me, but at the same time, I'm, I think I'm supposed to be doing this internal work and like this healing work. And they kind of looked at me like I was speaking nonsense. And they said, why do you think those are two different things? You know, why, why do you think that by supporting us in transforming and healing ourselves, you would not be furthering social justice causes? Like we need you to do that. We need somebody to do that. So, so do it. You know, why, why are you making this harder than it has to be? <laughs> and it was this, this pivotal realization that I was trying to separate aspects of myself in a way that was causing me harm and was making me less effective. And so the, the two years of that graduate program were really where I leaned into what, where is this intersection between this path I've been on and this path I'm being called to. And I've been you know, running my business heartscapes now for four years. And I feel like it's, it's a slow journey of bringing those paths together um, that I'm still in. And, you know, it, it, it feels more and more true the, oh, the longer that I work. I love it. Um, I love to be with people as we find ways to include all of them in their life um, in surprising ways. That's what I hear you speaking to Um Beautiful. And I understand the constantly evolution, the constant evolution of that as, you know, the, it it keeps going and going, right. How, how to bring those, those aspects together. Um, And so there you are, you're getting your master's and you're beginning, um, you know, these things are beginning to be the yes and coming together. And um, four years ago, you formed a heartscapes, um, what I'd love to hear something about your journey with Reiki, um, because I know that there is a point there where you decided to look even more into the Japanese roots of Reiki. And I'm just, I would just love to hear a little bit um, about how nature has played a role um, for you with, I mean, I think Reiki is based on nature, right? But if, if how that's been for you, your relationship with nature and, and how it's changed under. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I would say in a certain sense, like my um, personal experience, like, you know, as a young person with um, nature as my spiritual guide, I grew up in a family of, of atheists and agnostics who um, did not provide specific guidance around spirituality or religion, um, but at the same time provided a lot of spaciousness and an invitation. So there wasn't this sense that like, I shouldn't be spiritual or religious, but there was a sense that like, um, go out and find that for yourself. And um, there's, you know, difficulty and also a lot of opportunity in, in my parents having taken that stance. And one of the opportunities was that I found nature as my first spiritual teacher. And I have very strong memories as a child of, of um, you know, befriending trees and, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, for imagination play, but we're also um, spiritual learning. And, you know, as an adult, I can, you know, having studied religion for some time and, and practicing a variety of spiritual paths, like I know now that, you know, nature is all of our first spiritual teacher. You know, we, we all come from people who learned how to be, you know, a human and also be a spiritual being through the example of the cycles of life around us and inside of us and the connections between them. And when I first started studying Reiki, I'm practicing Reiki within the kind of Western Reiki context, which is, um, you know, the form that's, that's most readily available and most, most common. Um, there was, there was a little bit of that and there was a sense of like connecting with, with the world in a, in a way that felt authentic. Um, 
But there was a gap in the information about why that was and why this particular system of practice um, you know, had the potential to bring us into a much more profound relationship with ourselves and with life around us and with an understanding that that's one and the same. And so I, I studied for about three years with my first teacher. Um, it's an amazing woman, incredibly compassionate, dedicated practitioner and teacher. And at a certain point, you know, as we often do when we're on a long journey of learning, you know, I kind of hit a wall and felt like there was this, this deeper, like groundwater of potential within the system of Reiki that I had not yet reached. And I just kept striving to find it through different classes, more, more classes, more whatevers. And I was just not touching it. And there was this growing disconnection between my practice and what I felt like Reiki must be. And part of that I knew was that I didn't know hardly anything about its Japanese origins. And that felt very incongruous to me. It felt like I know this came from Japan. I am a, a white European descended American studying and practicing this Japanese art. And I know almost nothing about the Japanese origins and why the, the elements of the system are what they are and, and what they meant culturally and mm. what they still mean culturally yeah. in Japan. And that felt very like out of integrity in a certain way. And it also felt ineffective. Like I felt my effectiveness as a practitioner diminishing and I almost gave it up altogether because of the frustration of that and just not finding the answers that I was needing. And, um, it was interestingly an animal Reiki class that finally bridged the gap. So, you know, again, turning towards the natural world, turning towards the, the life that's the not human. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, the, the, the woman, Kathleen Prasad, who kind of codified animal Reiki, um, her teacher taught in the Japanese lineage. And so this, this kind of groundwater of the origins of the practice were present in animal Reiki. And it was the most profound experience of, of feeling like my toe finally dipped into that water. And I was like, oh, I need more of this. <laughs> Mm. So, um, you know, part of what then got to happen as a result of that, um, I pretty much immediately started, you know, I, now, the, now that I knew who to, whose books to read and which, where to focus my attention and where to get the information, um, I just started, you know, devouring that and um, ultimately ended up uh, studying with the teacher who taught Kathleen Prasad, Franstina, he's my current teacher. And you know, that led deep into the roots of nature-based indigenous spiritual practice through the lens of Japan, first and foremost, um, through the, the practices of Shinto and the esoteric Buddhist practices that kind of merged with Shinto uh, over time, um, but ultimately leading me back to my own lineage and my own childhood as a, a study of nature and my own lineage Ooh. as a Celtic person. Um, I just have to stop there just for a breath because I, I just noticing, you know, the joy I have when you were speaking about that, of how it led you back hmm. to your, your roots, you said, but also to just, it sounds like this, this self that you loved. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's so beautiful that you obviously were very aware as you were going through all of this. Um, 
And you really experienced that. Thank you for saying that. I know I interrupt. Keep going, keep going. (laughs) No, that's fine. I know you're like, please interrupt me because I could just (laughs) ramble on for hours and hours. Um, Yeah. And I, and I would say so a lot of that awareness kind of came over time. Like I was really just in it, you know, I was again on the breadcrumb hunt, right? Like, oh, I had this meditation in an animal Reiki class and I felt something different. That was something I had been searching for. So where, where do I find it? Well, let me go on Amazon and see, look at books. You know, <laughs> Oh, this, I remember this name. I remember the teacher saying this name in class. So look at that book. You know, it was like really this, like following clues. Was it curiosity or, or was it more, more, was it more um, like necessity driving it? Like I, I want this so bad. Was it more like a calling? It was both for sure. I mean, I, th- I think they're intertwined. The curiosity flowed from this sense of, um, you know, this, this practice, which, which was genuinely very, very important to me. But again, I'd kind of reached this, like I had hit this wall with it. And so this idea that, oh, I don't have to give this up, right? I, I can I can follow right. a different path um, that, or not a different path, but, I, you know, here's a fork in the road that I can take. It's not a wall, it's a turn, you know? Um, yeah, so there was tremendous curiosity and tremendous passion and this like reawakening of, um, or this reassurance that I don't have to leave this behind. I just have to, I have to bring myself into alignment with it. I have to bring myself into integrity with it in a way that I hadn't known how to do before. Yeah. Beautiful. So then you were, when did the word Shinto come in to this? Yeah. Well, once you start (laughs) studying Reiki from its Japanese origins, you know, you pretty quickly run into Shinto and esoteric Buddhism. Um, those are the roots, uh, that they, they, those were the, so both of those are the roots of the Japanese. Okay. And, and a few other related things like, um, martial arts that were related that grew out of, um, Shinto and, and all of these things were the, the practices that were active in the life of the founder of the system, Mikao Yusui. So he, um, you know, was a, a lay, uh, priest of, uh, esoteric Buddhism, either Tendai or Shingon, there's debate about which one, but they're very similar. Um, He would, you know, he was Japanese. So he grew up very steeped in Shinto as a, as a philosophy and as a backdrop of life. And he was a practitioner of a practice called Shigendo, which is essentially a a merging of, of indigenous nature-based kind of shamanic uh, Shinto practices and esoteric Buddhism. So that would be the, like the mountain shaman. Like if you think of these very beautiful classic um, like rice paper paintings of a, of a mountain mm-hmm. um, in Japan and like way at the tippy top of the mountain, there's like a little dude like sitting up there, you know, meditating. Like that's the, that's the Shigenza. That's the, um, the Shigendo practitioner up there on a, you know, seven or 21 day fast, you know, just letting mm. nature teach um, and guide. And so that was the, that was the lifestyle that Mikhail Yusui um, embraced and, and had um, for his whole life. And along with a lot of interesting historical things that were happening at the time, which I will not go into because I could geek on that for way too long. Um, you know, he, he ended up pulling together these essential elements of these practices into a, a system of practice that was more accessible to people who weren't going to necessarily devote their entire life to, you know, spiritual practice and sitting on mountains, but who, you know, needed something powerful in their lives. And so basically what Reiki is, is this like uh, alchemy and this distillation of the essential components of, you know, certain parts of Shinto and certain parts of esoteric Buddhism and certain parts of Shigendo and, and martial arts that he felt were essential and that, 
you know, came together in five elements to make a system of practice that could be taught and and shared. So, mm. yeah. And so there you were, you were, um, you were following your integrity. Yeah. You were following your curiosity, your kind of longing to be in relationship with this work in a different way. You got that fork in the road and beautiful description, by the way, of what this is like to put those, um, aspects together. And now we've got meditation in the room. I'm, I'm curious, did, um, mm-hmm. esoteric, yeah, uh, Buddhism or did, how did, did meditation come in in a different way at this point? Yeah. So, so meditation or forms of breath work visualization are one of the five elements of the system and it's meditations that are drawn of all from of, those. of all of Reiki or, or in this more rooted <sighs> form that you pursued. Yeah. So, Western Reiki contains certain types of meditation, but, but Western Reiki really just through the historical events that brought it here in the first place, it really um, focuses primarily on the kind of hands-on healing aspect. So a practitioner and a client or a practitioner in themselves, you know, in a meditation of sorts, wherein one lays one's hand on on the body or just off the body and shares energy in a way that's, that's healing and restoring and relaxing. And that that's the central focus of Western Reiki. And then there's lots and lots and lots of ways that people practice that and lots of things that have been added into it. And, you know, it's, it's, it it is an aspect of American culture that we melting pot things, right? We, we, we pull pieces of lots of different traditions together. We melt them down. We make something different, you know, we give it a name. So the word Reiki in the West has come to mean a wide variety of practices and a wide variety of ways of, you know, blending different traditions. Um, but almost always have in common this aspect of like hands-on healing. Um, so what I would be speaking of then is is more the, the Japanese origins, which had hands-on healing as one of five elements that were um, you know, more or less equally important, but I would say that the hands-on healing part, you know, came into the system later. It was like, you know, not the emphasis. The emphasis was um, a a set of precepts that was, you know, describing the outcomes that one could expect to have if one practices and um, a series of uh, meditations, visualizations, and mantra repetition that would help to bring you into alignment with those precepts and um, then meditating on symbols and, you know, a couple of other aspects came in to the system as it was shared um, with other people. And so, you know, meditation in, in that context, it's, uh, it's not like mindfulness meditation. It's not where you're, you're just kind of sitting silently observing your thoughts. Mindfulness meditation is actually an advanced practice inside of Buddhism. It's not something that you would just take out of context and go do by itself. It's very strange that we kind of have separated out mindfulness meditation as this whole other practice out of the outside of the context of Buddhism. Um, so it's not that. It's it's a it's a series of practices that directly engage the body, the mind, the breath, kind of give each of those ways of being a a task to focus on with the purpose of really training the mind to focus on what's essential, to to pull our mind in from all of the distractions and to focus on our center, to focus on our connection with life, 
focus on the experience of being alive um, and to do a variety of other things. Uh, so there's often mantra recitation involved. There's gestures of the body involved. There's visualizations of the mind involved and specific breathing patterns that we would kind of shorthand call meditations. Hello. That's a great introduction. <laughs> Jeez. And, and does this continue these, these um, five aspects? Do, do you continue with them all? Yeah. You yourself personally. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's daily regular practice. Um, practice might, you know, look a little bit different from day to day, depending on what I need and what constraints of the day are there. But, um, there's certain fundamental practices, like for example, the, the kind of foundational breathing practice, which is called Josh and Kokyoho, which translates as a method to focus the mind. And that practice is very simple, very straightforward. And my body is so trained to it now that I drop into it like all the time. Um, which is good because, you know, one of the things that we really focus on in our teaching and in our practice circle is the idea that, you know, yes, we want to be able to give ourselves dedicated practice time, you know, time on the mat, time on the meditation pillow, time free from distraction, um, self-care time. But we also want to be able to call on these practices in the midst of our daily life, you know, in the middle of a work meeting, when our kid is having a tantrum, when we're on in stuck in traffic when we have a decision to make, um, when we're in a creative process. You know, if we can't draw on our practice in those moments, then it's limited in how it can actually serve us. And so there are certain fundamental practices inside of the system that we really work on training our body to and in training ourselves to drop into um, all day long, basically, without having to separate out time. So, so, yeah, so I would say my practice is a combination of, of those things, you know, dedicated time, which might look like five minutes. It might look like a half an hour, depends on the day. Um, I look like an hour. Um, and then these moments of dropping in throughout the day. And we talk about that a lot with our students because it's, it's a question that is really quite vexing um, to many of us. You know, we, we have these experiences of something that really impacts our physiology, right? Like makes us feel less stressed, makes us feel more relaxed, more connected, more insightful, more creative, more inspired. And then we go back out into our life and we're stressed and we forget all about it. And it's like this constant question of how do I hold on to that? (laughs) You know, how do I not lose that feeling? So we work with that a lot. And what is your direct answer? Um, I hear the goal, the or the process is integrating into the day, so it's not separate out, so that you can draw on them at at at, at all times. Um, given what you just said, but what do you say to people who ask you that they're in the learning yeah. process? Do you say it will happen? It will come <laughs> in. You know what I mean? Um, not usually, because that's not not you. I mean, yes, like. Yes, it will. But that, you know, saying that to someone who's frustrated is usually not super helpful. But, um, you know, there's kind of there's the mundane answer, which is we practice. Right. So if we can for the love of practice or when you say that or, you know, what what is. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that if if we can if we choose to 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 pursue this. So using Reiki as an example, but this would be true for a lot of different practices. Um, and and then, then we want to choose to be to be somewhat diligent about it, especially at first. And so, you know, the first step is to set aside that five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes a day to practice, to 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 train our body to drop into the practice 
just like a martial artist would train their body, would do that same move over and over and over again. So that when they're walking down the street and somebody jumps at them from right. behind a bush, their body just does the move. They don't have to think about it. Right. So the, the, the kind of mundane answer is, you know, the way that we incorporate our practice into our daily life and into our daily stresses and distractions is by dedicating time outside of those spaces to entrain. And then from there, we can get creative because everybody has different habits, different patterns, different ways of learning, different ways of um, experiencing things. And so from there, I would talk to people about, you know, how they go through their day, you know, how they like to learn, how, when were, are the moments in their day when they feel relaxed? And, and then we start thinking about how to create a way of consciously um, increasing those moments. Uh, so from there, the, the list gets very long about how. Uh, how we make it more of a habitual, regular patterning in our life, um, but the but the the fundamental, just true answer is we do it by committing to practice. Well, I've got to ask you because I work with people and we create practices together, right? Being the mm-hmm. transformational coaching things. And do you? Um, is there a percentage? Are there are there some people who come who really? feel like well, I want to do this and then they just can't practice and they end up kind of leaving? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I talk about this with my coach a lot. I, I co-teach all of my classes with um, the, that friend that I originally mentioned had for, mm-hmm. first mentioned the word Reiki to me. Um, so he and I have been on this journey together um, this whole time. His name is Joe G. And, uh, you know, we talk about this a lot because, um, you know, he comes from a very traditional uh, Chinese and Japanese martial arts training perspective. And from that perspective, like if you, if something matters to you, like you commit to it and you practice it every day for years and years and years and years, right? You know, like he, he practices right. martial arts every day for like 30 years, you know? Right. And so for him, if somebody takes a class and then we never hear from them again, like something's gone wrong, right? Like something, something is not, is not right. And, you know, We've been exploring the wide variety of things that that can mean, um, because sometimes it does mean that we've we've dropped the ball in some way, right? Like maybe we haven't um, communicated something well, or maybe there's just not a good fit for that person. Um, it might also mean that there are things going on in their life that are in the way, and it and it you know, like it's just not in their life to practice. They might also not actually um, need or want to be doing that in community. So we host a community of practice and we do t- twice a month practices together. And then I wanted to ask you about season. that. So the community practice, yeah. because that was one of my questions. So, but keep going. Yeah. Cause I do want to get back to that. If you have a specific question, you could put it in there. I bet I'll answer it. Well, yeah, <laughs> well just the, you know, here you are, you're teaching this, you're leading this and how does this happen in groups and how much is individually, you know, these practices, how much of this kind of real strengthening through the practice happens in group and how much on, on people's on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome question. Yeah. That first teacher that I mentioned, um, her name is Elizabeth Fulmer. She's here in Davis. Um, like I said, really amazing teacher and practitioner. She, um, she had as a very robust community practice. So I learned just right off the bat as a student that that's a good thing to have, right? (laughs) Like that greatly increased my, um, commitment to it, you know, feeling, like I had a place where I could a- ask questions and, you know, be held and get regular practice. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that um, 
without that community of practice, I probably would have been one of those people who would have dropped off because um, I tend to need kind of an external uh, set of accountability and structure and, you know, those to whom I am accountable when it comes to starting something new and doing something difficult. And so, you know, when I started teaching, it was just like, well, we definitely need a community of practice. <laughs> it was just right off the bat. And um, participation in it varies quite a bit, you know, and, and this time of the pandemic has been a really fascinating time to see what's kind of happened, you know, where we've had to shift to online. We've learned a lot about how to create sacred space on a Zoom call, um, which I'm grateful for. But there's definitely, um, you know, people who are like practicing in community is essential to them and they show up almost all the time. There's people who drop in when they feel they need it and it's more sporadic. There's people who never come. And what I'm orienting myself towards is that all of that is fine, right? That everybody gets to have what they need, right? And my job is to create a space as, as much as I have capacity for being, you know, just a one person with a, a good helper, a good co-teacher, um, you know, create enough space as, as much as I can for people to uh, have different types of opportunity. And so the community of practice um, has been a really important space for that and a really important, important touchstone. And we have a private Facebook group and, you know, various ways people can ask questions. Um, some people do choose to do one-on-one -on -one lessons. And I love that. I love the opportunity to work with somebody one-on-one -on -one to really get in depth with what they specifically need and are interested in, um, to get to go kind of deep and concentrated in that way. And then to bring that back into the community and let that person be a, tier, a peer educator for others because they've, you know, asked some different questions. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a combination of things and it's, you know, a relatively small community. I haven't been at it for that long. Right. Um, in my fourth year. And so it's, so would you say been you've been, te intimate. you've been teaching, um, Reiki for four years uh, during the heartscapes? Yes. Got it. And, you know, I, I really, really enjoy hearing how you wrap your head around that, um, with people in practice. Um, and there's, we could keep talking about that. I, but I, you know, there's something I wanted to ask you about what you're finding. Have you found that some people who like to be in group in community practice that online, they couldn't, they just couldn't get there, even though you got really good at putting those spaces together. Did you find that some people just couldn't make the transition and For that sure. others? Yeah. 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 It was, you know, I mean, we could have a whole other yeah. conversation about last year, you know, <laughs> it's like right. last year was a profound teacher of, of all of us in different ways. And, uh, my, my whole business shut down for three to four months because I just needed to hibernate and to be with what was happening and to figure out what it meant for me personally. And then, you know, I did a lot of, um, I made a lot of videos and like started a YouTube channel so I could just kind of in one direction, like just say, Hey, this is what's happening for me. <laughs> you know, this is what's, yeah. what I'm thinking. This is what it means for me. And from there, you know, turning back towards the practice. And part of that was just learning the mechanics of, you know, hosting these things, um, online. And yes, certainly there were folks that were like, this is just too, like there, you know, there are folks who are like, this is just too sad, you know, right. to like be looking at you in squares on a computer. Like this is just too sad. Are, are to you not meeting get together? Are you meeting in person now again? Are you doing both or? 
Um, so it's, you know, it's touch and go because sure. rules keep changing. So right yeah. now, um, we are, my County has a mask mandate, but people can still meet inside. And so, you know, one of the, the gifts of this time is this expansion. So because we were offering everything online, all of a sudden people from all over could study with us. So we now have students, you know, on the East coast and in Canada and, you know, in Texas and various places. And so we've, you know, at this point, we're always offering the community of practice, both online and in person. So like for the foreseeable future, we'll always give the option for people to zoom in. Um, and at the same time or different classes at the same time, which is challenging. And it, and it's, you know, at first felt very limiting. I mean, when everybody was online, of course, we couldn't do any hands-on work and, you know, like there's just a lot of limitation to what we could actually do in a practice circle, but that also got us creative about what we could do. So now, you know, if we have people online and people in the studio, um, you know, we've just kind of worked out ways for everybody to have a robust practice and to, you know, let Great. people be working on different things at the same time. You know, it, it helps that there's two of us teaching, um, for people considering going into any kind of teaching at all, I highly recommend co-teaching because uh, just having another person there to hold the container and to help facilitate things and to, you know, be a, a creative thought partners has just been so important to, to us. I love that. And um, I want to just quickly say, what are a couple of the programs that people can look up on your site that you're currently offering or that you offer, not just currently, but you know, it'll probably be going on for, for a while. It's yeah. a community of practice is one of the things. Individual work is another thing. Yeah, um, and you so, have a 21 day thing too, right? Yeah. So I'll just touch on a few of those things that are kind of ongoing. So in terms of, of Reiki, there's um, ongoing, you know, Reiki certification classes. So Reiki one, two, right. and three. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's kind of grafted onto the, the, the traditional levels right. of level one, two, and three. Um, and, and then a teacher training. So for people who want to become Reiki, Reiki teachers, we hold that as a separate training. Um, anybody who's done any learning with us at all is welcome to join the community of practice. And we offer that, um, as essentially as a membership and people can either, um, you know, make a donation when they can, or people can sign up for a monthly membership um, okay, at, great. at a sliding scale, you know, just to contribute what they can. Um, so that's ongoing. And then, and people who are not students of ours can also join. And we just ask that we have a conversation with them to just, you know, talk about, you know, the Japanese perspective that we hold and just, you know, make sure it's a good fit. Um, so those are ongoing and we offer those classes. Um, right now we're on a schedule of, uh, two to three times a year. And so our next Reiki one class will be in January. And then as part of the community practice, we do a, a quarterly um, aligned with the solstices and the equinoxes, 21 day practice, as you just mentioned. And those are an opportunity to spend a concerted amount of time. Um, we basically hold a practice space for a half an hour every day for 21 days leading up into the solstice and the equinox. So we just completed yesterday. You sure did, just the, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's an opportunity for us to take one of these um, influences of Reiki. So this past one, we were really focusing on Shinto and we were focusing on um, trees and, you know, collaborating with trees as a, um, you know, form of the web of life. Which is what um, I want to, which is what I actually want to ask you about in a second, yeah. but keep going. Yeah. 
yeah, so just so we'll you know we kind of choose a certain aspect of the of of Reiki and and the influences of Reiki, and we just kind of do a deep dive into that for 21 days. And people who participate are welcome to drop in for as many of those 21 days or as few as they want. Some people come just a couple of times. Some people come every single day. You know, every, everything in between. So it's it's a really spacious way to, and and fun often way to drop into some practice. Um, and then there's special topics classes. So right now I'm working on a trauma-informed Reiki um, piece, and that's specifically for practitioners and teachers who want to um, create a trauma-informed practice. And so in other words, um, make sure that their sessions and their classes as much as possible are spaces that, um, you know, hold a sense of kind of safety and consent and control for pe- people who are in there and as little as possible um, you know, minimize the opportunity for uh, internalized traumas to be to be provoked inside of a session. Um, so I'm really excited about that work. I've been working on it for some time, and that class will be out in February. Beautiful. You've got so much, and you've got it great on your website. I, you know, I really, I promised myself I would ask you what it's like for you to go walking in the woods. What it's like for you to be around trees at this point, um, in your, yeah in your relationship with the Shinto, the meditation, the connection to nature, the, I would just love to hear how it impacts you that nature practice is such a big deal for me and Mm. is what keeps me, um, (laughs) really together, uh, but, but connected in the way that makes everything, uh, worth doing, uh, from there. It's like the, the connection to source, like, yeah, this is why I'm here. Now I can go into the world. I'm just wondering what it's like for you when you say walk in the woods or see, you know, you're spending time. Yeah, I love that question. Um, I would say first and foremost, I'm paying a lot more attention. Um, I'm entering those spaces and, and, you know, similar to walking down the street, you know, in the suburbs where I live, where there's, you know, city trees lining, lining the street. It's, it's a greater sense of awareness that I am walking among friends and I'm walking among, um, living beings that are, um, you know, that I'm not so different from, um, but at the same time, like I'm walking among teachers and sometimes that is painful, you know, like right now it's late September. I live in the Sacramento Valley. We're in a drought year. We have been for a long time. The trees are hurting, right? It's like, it's painful for them right now. And it's painful for them in large part because of man-made activity, right? And so there's this piece around self-responsibility. And part of what the practice of Reiki does is it increases our capacity to be with the the genuine feelings and experiences of others, including other beings that are not human. It increases our capacity for compassion. You know, it is a compassion practice. And so, you know, oftentimes when we really lean into compassion for ourselves and for other living beings, you know, we put ourselves in a position of holding pain. Um, and, and that's, that's good. You know, it's a good thing to be a person who can do that and who can do that without harming themselves. Right. Cause there's an unhealthy version of that. There's an unhealthy version of taking on other people's pain or taking on the pain of the world and the pain of the trees and, you know, making ourselves overly, um, upset about that. Um, so this practice gives us a, a pathway to not be attached to anger about the state of nature, the state of humanity's relationship to the world, to not be 
uh, attached to our fear about what will happen to be truly grateful for the connection, to be compassionate for ourselves and for the other beings that we're in relationship with and to be true to ourselves inside of that. And so all of that has meant that walking in the woods is really, um, it's a conversation. It's a space of curiosity and creativity and intuition. And sometimes it's a painful place to be. And that's okay. Mm. Wow. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much for walking me through that. It was just, I felt like I just kind of walked with you. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'm thinking we're coming here to the end that um, I'd love to end with that. Um, yeah. Can you, um, well, I say, do you, is there a poet or something that is, comes along with the Shinto exploration <laughs> that you have seems like right for poetry oh, that you absolutely. could share with us? Yeah. We use a lot of poetry in our practice from a lot of different traditions. Um, I, I Pixie Lighthorse is a, a poet and um, spiritual practitioner that I quote a lot. Uh, she has a series of books called Prayers of Honoring, um, and she's sharing from Native American perspectives. Um, inside of Shinto, you know, you 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 get to look back at um, like Japanese waka poetry and and haiku and things of that nature. And I actually have here a book by Basho, which is the um, most notable haiku poet uh, in Japan's history. Um, he lived from 1644 to 1694. And I'm just going to pick up this book like an oracle deck, and I'm just going to flip it here. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to find us a poem from Basho to close us out. So the, the page that I landed on is Scenes of Early Spring. So we're going to forecast two seasons into the future. <laughs> Fresh spring. The world is only nine days old. These fields and mountains. Heated spring air in tiny waves of an inch or two above wintry grass. Mm, thank you, Basho. And thank you. My goodness, uh, Michaela. Um, uh, We'll have um, all the references in your liner notes below. And thank you for spending this time with me. It was joyous. Well, that's today's podcast of Creative at the Wheel. Before we go, I want to invite you to check out my ongoing Friday gathering, online gathering, The Creative Cure, where for 75 minutes each Friday, we follow our intuition and play with pen, paper, paint, whatever creative materials you have on hand as a way of coming back into alignment with life and the moment fully expressed. It's very healing and a whole lot of fun. You can also learn more about my one-on-one -on -one coaching on my website, paintbiglivebig.com. <laughs>